Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys this morning. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. If you're joining us online, welcome. We're so glad that you could digitally bring us right into your kitchen or uh, bedroom or living room or wherever you are. We're glad to see all of you this morning. If you've got a Bible, uh, turn to Ch- Titus chapter 2. We're in the middle of a series called Every Good Work where we're talking about this big picture work of the church, how we accomplish it together uh, in our churches. And so we'll just jump in in just a minute in Titus chapter 2. Before we do that, uh, can I just pray for us and ask God to make plain what might seem difficult this morning. And so you pray this with me. Uh, Father, help us this morning by your Spirit to understand what's written, and to see how it applies to our hearts and our lives. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to jump in this morning. we got a, a little bit to cover. Uh, once we get started in this passage, you'll see there's some things that we need to answer uh, to make sure we don't leave unanswered. So let's just jump right in. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an an opponent may not be put to shame and have nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now there's a lot in the text today. I want to remind you of the problem in Crete. So Titus has been sent by Paul to this island of Crete where the church is in complete disarray. And so Titus, this young man, co-worker with Paul, has been sent there to set things straight, to get the church healthy again. What we saw over the past couple weeks is the major issue has been a leadership issue. And so last week we saw that Titus has to solve this leadership issue. But now once he gets the leadership issue solved, there's all sorts of relationship issues that he's got to get sorted out. All of these stem from these poor leaders in Crete. Now, there's two things going on with the leaders that were in the church of Crete. The first one is poor teaching. The people of the church are confused about the very basic message of Jesus. They've been taught by these false teachers that their relationship with God is based on some sort of rituals or following certain regulations. That's why in chapter one, he calls them, Paul calls these guys of the circumcision party. They're teaching people that they've got to obey certain Jewish rituals in order to be accepted by God. The problem is is that teaching just simply isn't true in the New Testament. 
that what we find to be the case is not that people obey certain rituals or regulations to be accepted by God, but instead this teaching that people are accepted by God through Jesus. And it's when we come into relationship with Jesus, when we already have God's acceptance, that then out of that place we start to obey, that it's a family. And when you belong to the family, then you start working out what it looks like to be a family member. Now, what's happened in Crete is what happens all the time. This false teaching produces what it always produces. Not more obedience, but less. Because what happens is when you start obeying these certain three or four regulations and you think that puts you in a good place with God, then you lose the heart and the motivation to please God in the context of a relationship. So these people are looking less like Jesus, not more like Jesus. It's produced the opposite effect. It just looks like a community, like any other community, just with a few extra rules or regulations. The other problem is not just bad teaching, but these leaders have been bad examples. And so the character of their lives isn't setting good examples for the people in the church And so their lives don't look like the lives of people who follow Jesus. There's not a lot of grace or compassion. There's not a lot of serving other people because everyone is self-seeking. There aren't actively, these leaders, remember, were actively looking to deceive people instead of leading them in truthfulness, and that's being what's replicated. And so the result is this church is completely destroyed. Not just at a theological level, a lack of understanding, but at a relational level. They don't know how to get along with each other. And that's why Paul in chapter 1 uses this phrase that these leaders are upsetting whole families. That he's thrown all of these families in disarray. Now that word there is oikos, which means household. We think of families, we think of nuclear families, right? Because where we live, our day and time, you get everyone out of the house. That's the goal right? 18, you need to move on, you know, go find your own way, go start your own family. And so we just kind of think of these like mom, dad, 2.4 kids, white pig fence, like the whole thing. But in this day, this word oikos or household is used just to mean a network of familial relationships. And so it could include people who are actually related or not related, but people in the course of life who are sharing life with each other. So it's not just a few families where moms and dads aren't getting along anymore. This is a massive issue, a threat to the entire community of the church, that these natural networks of relationships have been poisoned. They're all in disarray. Now, this is a huge deal. The reason this is a huge deal is because households or networks of relationships is the way the ministry or work of Jesus' church is done. That's where it all happens. It shouldn't be surprising to us. This is what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13. You will know my disciples by the buildings that you build. You will know, people will know you're my disciples when you start unbelievable programs. People will know you're by my disciples by your discipleship classes. No. Jesus told his disciples, people will know you're my disciples by your love for each other. 
And so what's happened in Crete is the very thing that's supposed to be attractive about the church has been decimated. So how then is this church going to restore these households to places of loving God and loving neighbor? Or how will we as a church ensure that we continue to be networks of relationships or households that place a priority on loving God and loving our neighbor. It's pretty simple is what Paul says Titus, to Titus. You get better leaders, and then you and your leaders get busy doing two things. Where there was poor teaching, you put some good teaching. So you make sure, he says, what you teach accords with sound doctrine. Now, is there anything that sounds more churchy than this phrase, sound doctrine? For many of us, when we hear the word doctrine, we're like, I don't want to be indoctrinated by anybody, anytime, any place. You start using words like doctrine or theology, and I am out of here, right? But that's not really what the phrase means. Doctrine just means teaching. Sound just means whole or healthy. And so really what Paul is telling Titus is, Teach the good stuff that helps people become healthy or whole followers of Jesus. Teach in a way that's about Jesus and for people. That's what I want you to do. And notice that this is a shared responsibility. Verse 3 instructs them. You get these older women to join you. They need to teach and train too. And in the context of the whole thing, he's giving this responsibility away, that this teaching ministry, making sure that people learn what it looks like to follow Jesus in a healthy way, is the responsibility of the entire church. So he says, teach better. The second really simple thing, where there was bad examples, be better examples. And in verses 2 through 10, Paul is breaking down a variety of ways different people can be good examples. Teach people about Jesus and then show them with your life what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, we don't have time today to break every single one of these phrases apart. So I just want to give you the big picture. With older men, he says, don't let them check out on you. In a place of conflict in a church, it's easier for older guys to go, man, I already done that. Conflict in families, it's easier for older guys to be like, man, I already raised my kids. I already did teenage years. It was terrible. I'm over it, right? I'm done. But here, Paul is saying to Titus, no, you need older men to be loving and faithful and disciplined and self-controlled and to be willing to be an example to these younger men in your church. He says older women, I mean older women, same thing. Don't coast. You're done raising your kids. You're not doing the bottle diaper change anymore, but that doesn't mean you're done with the kingdom. In the family of the church, it would be easy for you at this point to relax and coast and live a self-indulgent life. And he's saying, don't, don't do that. Instead, stay engaged. Use your wisdom and knowledge to benefit the next generation. Particularly, he instructs these older women to teach younger women. 
Now, the particular things happening with these instructions to younger women might be jarring for us in this culture if we don't remember the context. Now, remember the context is bad leaders are upsetting families. So here's what seems to be the case at Crete. That these bad leaders have used their positions of power in particular to abuse their relationships with younger women. Sound familiar? Maybe like the last decade in the United States, this sort of thing happening repeatedly. Guess what? It's not new. And it's not just secular. It happens in the life of the church, right? It's what Paul's addressing here. Otherwise, why would he need to tell these young women to love their husbands and their children? Something as catastrophic has happened or gone wrong if you have to tell a mom, you need to love your kids, And so he's saying, hey, the damage has happened in these households. Young women are on the front lines of the damage. And so we need help. We got to get some older ladies in there to help train them and repair what's been broken. Unfortunately, we often read the Bible out of context. And so I'm sure a lot of you have read this passage or heard this passage taught in some ridiculous way where the Bible says that women always have to stay at home. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is home is where the disaster is. And so home is what needs some work. And these older women need to jump in there and teach and train these younger women where there has been an implosion. And then he looks at younger men and this seems... Like he's not covering the issue very well. He just says, younger men, be self-controlled, period. Like you don't have anything else to say to young dudes? No, not really. Because the temptation for the young man is to experience everything in excess. The temptation for the young man is to ignore any other teaching and just pursue his own interest. And so Paul just says real simply, stop. Grow up. Be responsible for your family. Be responsible for yourself. Manage your finances. Take responsibility at your job. Be self-controlled. And then in verse 7, he repeats what he's saying to Titus again. As for you, teach what it sounds with good doctrine. You, he says to Titus, be a model of good works. What's he doing there? He's saying, Titus, what these young men men need, they need it all. These young women, they're going to get it straight. Some older ladies are going to help them. We're going to get this back. But young dudes, they're going to need you. They're going to need every other elder. They're going to need every other man in the church pouring into them because they are out of control. Sound familiar? Yeah, not too different, right? Not too different. So the idea here is that everyone in the church has relationships where they are learning to follow Jesus better. That it's this community full, not just of a preacher teaching on Sunday mornings, but everyone sharing life lessons with each other, asking questions and growing to look increasingly more like Jesus. Now there is a challenge here that we need to address in verse nine, where he turns his attention to bond servants. Many of us are probably asking this question, what's the deal with these instructions to bond servants? Paul here is not dealing with the institution of slavery 
They have no concept or very little idea in the New Testament of this American slave trade that we often talk about. But we know that he's addressed that sort of issue in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul actually says that enslaving other people is ungodly and sinful. He's very direct about it. So instead, what's happening here is these bond servants who are serving in these households or families have gotten caught up with the conflict. And there is division, not just between husband and wife or children or crazy uncle or grandparents, but also including these servants. And all he's saying here is just because your situation is not right does not mean that you get to act in ways that uh, would dishonor Jesus. So even in the middle of your difficult situation, you continue to respond to the authority over you with grace and respect. That's it. Really asking for us this question, what do we do when our situation is less than desirable? And Paul's response is, there is never any excuse at any time for us to act in ways that would not look like Jesus. That's what he's being addressed. Remember, it's about this particular conflict. So what do we need? What did this church need to rebuild our communities and our families and our households? The answer is really simple. We need people to invest in the lives of other people. The way that we grow as a healthy church at Mercy Hill is not by having exceptional worship. That's good. It's not by a massive building program. That can be good. The way we grow to health is in community. The big picture of this passage is that discipleship is for the whole church and is by the whole church. A network of relationships with everyone serving each other challenging each other, encouraging each other, praying for each other. Now, what's a disciple? So after the nine o'clock, Mark Mason walked up to me and said, Pastor Brandon, I'd really liked your message, which is super cool because he's nine, right? And um, I was like, that's great. Was there any part that was confusing? And he said, what's a disciple? And here's how I explained it to Mark Mason that is not how I explained it to the nine o'clock service that's maybe better for you. So a disciple is an apprentice or a lifelong learner, someone who's put themselves in the position of a learner from someone else. And so what I explained to Mark, who's both of his parents were collegiate basketball players and he loves sports, is I said, Mark, how did you learn how to shoot a basketball? What happened? Well, his dad got him out in the driveway and told him and then showed him and then did it with him. I was like, Mark, that's what it means to be a disciple that you put yourself under the leadership of Jesus in the community of faith. People could tell you what it looks like to follow Jesus, show you what it looks like to follow Jesus, and then walk with you as you do it. The good work of discipleship, Paul says in verse seven, is modeling an example. Uh, So this might come as a surprise to some of you, Um, When it comes to hands-on, mechanical sort of things, I'm a moron, all right? I just want to be straight with you. I'm a moron. If you're joining us online and you want to admit the fact that maybe you're with me, that this sort of thing is not your thing, just let us, give me a thumbs up, a little bit of encouragement. I'll look at it later. It'll be good. I'm not alone in this. So um, a a few years ago, uh, the hood of my car would not stay open. 
right? Because the things on the side, the hydraulic things that hold it open were broken. And so I went to AutoZone and I bought new ones and I was like, how do I do this? And the guy's like, oh man, it's super simple. It's gonna be two bolts. You just take them off, you replace them. It's easy, you got it. He just described it to me. And it took me about two and a half hours to figure it out, right? I know some of you are judging me because you could do it in like 12 and a half minutes and that includes the trip to AutoZone and back, right? I understand that. Now, after that, I got a little, um, because I had success, I got a little ambitious and one of my headlights was out. And so I was like, done, right? And guess what? I could not figure out how to get the headlight out of the car. So I YouTubed it, which was amazing. I watched somebody else do it on YouTube, and then I just mimicked what they were doing, and I was able to figure it out. Now, that doesn't make me a mechanic. That just makes me a guy that watched YouTube one time, right? Way back in the day, when we were still living in middle Georgia, we had a car that was needed a lot of attention, and I was constantly taking it to the shop, and a guy in our church said, I'll help you. I know this is getting expensive, but I, I want to help you, so why don't you come by the house, and I'll show you what to do with your car. I'll teach you how to be a mechanic. And so with Bob Smithers, I went over to his house, and he had this whole shop in his basement, and he taught me how to change the brakes on a car. And the way he did it was he showed me one time and then the next time, he made me do the next one and then told me everything that I was doing wrong and then the next one, and, then, and that's the way that we did it. Guess what? If you ask me today to do any of those tasks, either the hydraulic arm that holds up my hood or the headlight or changing the brakes, I couldn't do any of it, not a bit of it. I would need a refresher course, a new YouTube video, and none of that makes me a mechanic. You know what would make me a mechanic? If I got a job in a mechanic shop and I watched guys do it over and over and over again, and then I did it over and over and over again until I failed, and they, uh, or until I succeeded, and they were giving me constant feedback the entire time. This is the picture here. That this, the community of faith of the church is so much bigger than just watching something on YouTube. It's hands-on discipleship, following Jesus, is by the whole church and for the entire church. It's shared responsibility. It's all of us working together. I love hearing about older guys in our church taking younger guys to breakfast. That's what it's about. I love that every time we have Mercy Hill Kids, somebody who's leading their leadership huddle says, we don't babysit kids here. We're discipling the next generation. That's what we're doing. I love that we have a, two, a couple and a couple of single adults, young adults pouring into middle schoolers in our church. We love the way this works because it requires us working all together. Now, what I'm going to say next might be hard to hear, but I need you to hang on. We're used, we're used to all sorts of ways to get our message out there. We're used to thinking creatively about ways we can share the gospel in our community. We're used to all sorts of methods to get the message out. But there is one main way to get the message in us. It's community. That's it. That's what it takes. 
is a network of relationships, of good teaching and good example, working together to form us into followers of Jesus. Now, some of you are skeptical. Let me try to prove it to you. Right before Kristen and I got married, um, we went and looked at our first apartment. We're going to buy an apartment. We couldn't afford this place normally. It was super nice, right on a golf course, uh, way better than grad school housing. Um, but they had just built it, and so they're trying to fill it up. It's empty. And so they're giving deals to whoever will take a deal so that they can fill this place up. Uh, so we're getting this killer deal. They show us two apartments. We look at one. Uh, it is in the front of the building. Uh, it's next to the parking lot. The pool is right across the street. It's tons of light is coming in. It's like busy. Things are happening all around it. Then they show us another apartment, same floor plan, but it's in the back against the golf course. It's lined by trees. It's dark and secluded. And my wife and I had a fight about which one to choose. Like, which one are we going to choose? What are we going to do? And so as we're fighting, we had to do like a timeout. Wait, wait, wait. Why don't we agree about the same floor plan? Like, this is strange. Same complex, same finishes, same floor plan. Nobody's lived in either one of these. What are we disagreeing about? Here's what it was. Is the one in the front of the building looks like my house growing up. Big windows, Tons of light coming in. My house growing up was not a retreat. It was a place where stuff happened. People in and out, my friends in and out. My uh, adopted sister, Sabina, like brought foreign exchange to students to our house without ever asking. And they would be like, hey, uh, so-and-so is going to live here for a while. And it's like, fine, give them a bedroom. Like, I mean, we just people in and out all the time. But Kristen's house growing up is quiet and dark, and cozy, and a retreat. The kind of place that you would want to go if you needed to decompress from a long day at the office. My house, there's no decompression happening ever, right? Just madness. We don't realize the extent to which our families shape us. We pick up habits and preferences in the way we make decisions from our families without even noticing. I always tell that story when I do premarital counseling because I say this, your default is always how you grew up. And you're gonna find yourself fighting over weird stuff simply because that's the environment that you grew up, grew up in. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because the only way to undo What's been shaped by family relationships is family relationships. And what Paul is talking about in this passage is the way to undo years and years and years of learned behavior in your life and my life is a new sort of community. Now, this should not surprise us because this is the gospel. When God wanted to rescue us from sin and death, he sent prophets to tell the truth, and he sent examples to show us the truth, but when he wanted to save us, he came in person. That's what the incarnation is about. God in the flesh. 
And he lived with us, walked with us, lived as a person in community. Jesus himself walked with his disciples for three years. The way that he taught them was in community. And so there's no surprise that here for Crete, Paul looks at Titus and goes, no, no, the method is the same. What you need is a better community. Models of the gospel actively teaching in the context of relationship. That's the way Jesus did it. And that's the way we likewise do it. Now, here's the problem. Community isn't easy and it's not convenient. It never is. It never will be. You know what else isn't convenient or easy? Going to a Georgia football game. I love going to Georgia football games, right? But have you ever done it from here on a Saturday? 316 from 85 all the way to Athens is like a parking lot. I mean, it's like 42 miles of just sitting in traffic. And then you get on campus. You know where the parking is? Not anywhere close to the stadium. So you're parking on the other side of the stadium, and either you take a bus or you huff it across the entire campus to get there. And then when you get there, you know what happens? You get funneled like cattle through this little gate where you're like shoulder to shoulder with some dude that you never want to be shoulder to shoulder with, right? It might even be a Tennessee fan. Then you get in the stadium. Somebody shows you to your seat, and you know what your seat is? Unless you're a big-time booster alumni, it is a metal bench and your allotted hiney space is not big enough for anyone's hiney. It's not easy, and it's not convenient, but it's amazing. And I love it, because often things that are worth it, worth your time and effort, aren't convenient, and they're not easy. Raising kids is not easy, but it's worth it. Pursuing your degree is not easy, but it's worth it. Being like Jesus in your attitude and character and actions is not easy, but it is worth it. And the way that God shapes us is community, is people. That's the way this whole thing works. Um, so I, some of you have seen over here in the youth room, we got a new floor over there. Really, it's just the old floor, but it's redone. So what we did was we tore up this old laminate floor, and then underneath that was tile. We tore that out. That was terrible. Scraped up the glue. We just went and found a bunch of college kids who don't know any better and asked them to do it, right? But then a guy in our church uh, donated the time to polish the concrete. You know how they polish concrete? It's fascinating. It's a massive machine that slowly sands down what's already there. And so my new friend Carlos is over here, two and a half days sanding concrete. Man, I don't have enough patience to like sand a project for school with my kids. You know, like five minutes, I'm like done sanding. Two and a half days, like 15 passes sanding this concrete. But you know what happens in the process? It went from looking like, Dull concrete poured in 1967 to an amazing finished product. It's not easy, but that's the way it works. Community is God's, mean, God's means to sand down 
the rough edges and corners of your life so that you end up with a better finish product. That's the way it works. So a couple questions for us today. Number one, what is your role in discipleship? What's your role? Who are you called to invest in now? It could be huge. It could be small. It could be your family members. It could be your grandkids. It could be some particular people in your missional community. It could be a single guy in our church that just needs a little uh, help or attention. It could be a young lady or a college student that just needs a family to have dinner with every now and then. But it's a question we all have to ask. Who has God placed in my life that I could be actively involved in discipling them? This might not look like a Bible study. It might not look like you're unpacking the scripture or difficult theological context. It could be you're just showing some young guy, this is how you be a dad. You show up, you smile, you show up again and you smile and you show up again and you smile and you don't know what's going on in gymnastics, but you show up and you smile and you encourage, like it just could be that simple. How to have a healthy relationship with your family, with your kids, with your church, with your neighbors. So the question is, how do we get started? It could be as simple as shared meals or shared interests, but you got to take some initiative. Both sides. Does that make sense? If you need this, you're, it's going to require a little initiative. We got some college students who've been coming over to our house for family movie night. We're terrible. The Nichols family is terrible about inviting them into our house for our family movie night on Fridays. But these kids are taking initiative. They're like, hey, can we come this Friday? No. Can we come next Friday? No. Can we come two Fridays from now? Yes, we'd love to have you two Fridays from now. Right? Like, but that's what it takes. The second question we have to ask ourselves is this. How am I disciplining myself for community? Listen to me. You don't drift towards community. You don't. You know what we drift towards? Netflix, fast food, easy stuff. This is why we have marriage. One of the reasons why we have marriage. Because you don't drift towards committed community with anybody, even people you love. So we got to have a whole ceremony and make promises that we won't drift away from this. Why? Because it's easy to do. And so in the life of community, it just takes discipline for us. Look, I know you're going to get involved in an MC and you're like, man, these people are weird, especially that one guy. Yeah, every group's got it. You just got to keep showing up because this is the means to which God uses to make us look increasingly more like Jesus. This is how you say in the floor in the context of community. So we would love for you to be involved in some way in community at the life of Mercy Hill. It might be serving on a team where you get to know people. It might be in one of our missional communities. It might be in a discipleship group. We're gonna talk more next week about some of those specifics, but this week is about this. Am I open? Do I see the value in belonging to a network of relationships that over time shapes who I am? That's a big question today. It's vital. Because discipleship is by the whole church 
and is for the whole church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us, that you rescued us, that when we were far from you, Father, you just didn't send some teachers, and you didn't just send some messages, and you didn't just send some good examples, but you came in person. And we see clearly that that's the way that you work. So, Father, in response to that, could we be men and women who are shaped by this family of faith? Could we take that seriously? Could we know ahead of time it requires discipline and commitment? But could we be willing to do it because it's good for us and it's good for other people in our church? Could make us, God, into a church of people who take our community seriously? Father, could we be people who want to do something about it? Father, for my friends here today, maybe watching online, who are far from you, And while this idea of a loving community sounds attractive for them, this idea of looking like Jesus is very foreign. Father, my prayer is that even in this moment, you would show them clearly their sin, their need for a savior, and you would draw them to yourself through your son, Jesus. That they would experience a loving community of God's people because they belong to God's people. Could you do that work? Father, convict us, encourage us, point us to what's next. In the name of Jesus, amen.